The federal government has added a number of organizations to its list of terror groups, including five ISIS affiliates and a handful of far-right extremist groups, including the Proud Boys. The move comes after Parliament voted to call on the government to add the Proud Boys to the list in the wake of its involvement in the January 6th events at the U.S. Capitol. But what does the terror designation actually do? Former CSIS terrorism analyst Phil Gursky joins me to discuss the purpose of Canada's terror group list where it can be helpful in dealing with extremist groups, but where politics can muddy the process. Don't forget, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Phil, as someone who was involved with the terror entity list as originally created by CSIS, what was the purpose of of that list from the outset? That's a great question. It certainly wasn't clear to me back in 2002 when I was asked to write the first Al-Qaeda list while I was at CSIS. So just for your listeners' benefit, I was a strategic analyst at CSIS on Mm 9-11, and I was the kind of guy looking at Islamist extremism as a phenomenon, and therefore it turned to me as the guy with the most, I guess, knowledge on the file to actually draw up the list. We were basically just told to do it. And I wasn't sure at the time what the actual benefits were, either to CSIS or to the Canadian government as a whole. It wasn't CSIS, to the best of my knowledge, that originated the request to the list. It was actually the Canadian government, then Public Safety Canada, or was it Solicitor General, whatever it was called back then. And it was essentially a way to draw up a tangible, real-world list of organizations that were deemed terrorist in nature. But the initial challenges were quite substantial in the sense that while we could use intelligence, i.e. classified information, to inform the process in general, the actual listing had to be based solely on open source because the listing is a public document. Mm-hmm. We had you know, a ton of intelligence on Al-Qaeda, and I guess... In all fairness, we had a fair bit of open source information, which, of course, grew exponentially after 9-11 because everybody and his dog was looking at Al-Qaeda as a terrorist group. But at the time, I must say, I I wasn't quite sure as to the whole genesis, the the raison d'etre of of drawing up the list in the first place. And I've kind of waxed hot and cold on them ever since. Do you feel like it was probably related just to our alliance with the U.S. and the war on terror? And the U.S. has its own list of groups that are terror groups. And so... As part of that alliance, Canada needed its own list? I think it's a great question. I don't know in terms of from a calendar perspective whether or not the United States had its own list prior to 9-11. Mm-hmm. I do know that in the wake of 9-11, or again, I'm not sure of the actual timelines here, the UN has a list, the European Union has a list, the United Kingdom has a list, the Australians have a list, and I'm sure there are other jurisdictions around the world that have a list. I think a lot happened in the wake of 9-11, in which we were keen to be seen to be helping the Americans. I mean, think of the big rally on Parliament Hill, right? Was it the day after or two days after 9-11? Yeah. All these people rallied on Parliament Hill to say, you know, we are Americans too, or whatever the hell is at the time. There's no question that the intelligence and and law enforcement sharing arrangements with the Americans have been robust for many, many decades prior to 9-11. I mean, I worked at CSE before I joined CSIS, and of course, the Five Eyes arrangement, if you want to call it that, dates from the Second World War. This is not new kind of thing. I do think there was probably a desire to express solidarity with the Americans. And so if in fact it was an American idea, and I don't know that to be the case, 
I don't see why we would have said no at the time because it just would have been, yeah, we can do that too. It's not too problematic. And as I said, I, I think it was the government in general that decided to do this. And then CSIS was a sign of responsibility as Canada's security intelligence organization. It could just as easily been a purely uh, center or central project run by public safety. It could have been given to the RCMP. It could have been given to anybody. Mm-hmm. But CSIS was the one that it, on, on whose doorstep it landed after 9-11. As someone who was involved with the original listing and, and dealing with Al-Qaeda, what goes into deciding whether to list a group as a terrorist entity? Is it based on, you know, intelligence? Is it based on actions uh, globally or locally? Or is it based on politics? How about all the above? (laughs) There's no question that, okay, you you know, a group like Al-Qaeda has got to be a no-brainer, right? They just killed 3,000 people and they bragged about it. And so clearly they were a terrorist entity. Other groups are equally as non-problematic. Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Boko Haram in Nigeria, Islamic State later on in Iraq and Syria. But the immediate problem you're faced with is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of terrorist groups around the world. And a lot of this hinges on what do you define to be a terrorist group, what do you define not to be a terrorist group, which I want to revisit with the Proud Boys at some point in this podcast. You know, you could list thousands of groups, but the question would be, well, why? Does Canada really need to list Jamaat Islamiyah, which is a group in Indonesia, on its terrorist list? Do we have any Jamaat Islamiyah followers in Canada? Is there any support for Jamaat Islamiyah in Canada? Mm-hmm. What would be the point? There are groups on there like ETA, the Basque Group, which has been around since the 50s. The FARC's been around since the 50s in, in Colombia. It isn't really clear to me what it is that designates one group as terrorists, whereas another group you would simply have to decide not to go with. And, and there's another related issue to this, which I think is really important, which your listeners I don't think really, really might, might realize. There's a listing process and there's a delisting process. So groups have been removed from the list historically. And the example that I point to in one of my podcasts is a group called the Mujahideen Khalq, which is an Iranian terrorist group and around since the 1980s. And the Harper government decided unilaterally in 2012 to take them off. And as somebody who was an Iranian analyst for decades, uh, both with CSE and the service, my immediate question was, why are the MEK off the list? Mm-hmm. Uh, have they stopped being a terrorist group? No. Have they stopped carrying out terrorist attacks? No. So what's the rationale? It was purely political at the time. Now, you mentioned the Proud Boys, and there's been a lot of talk in the wake of the January 6th riots in Washington. A lot of talk uh, from people like NDP leader Jagmeet Singh wanting to see the Proud Boys declared a terror group in part because of their role on January 6th. Parliament passed a motion calling on the feds to add them to the list, and the government listened. And they just last week, they added the Proud Boys yeah. and a bunch of other groups, and some of these are fairly serious, like the Base and Adam Waffen Division, both far-right neo-Nazi groups, as well as some groups linked to ISIS. Now, just kind of looking at who was added, what are the threats posed by these groups? How much time do we have? <laughs> no, it's, it, no I, and I'm not being facetious. This is a very, very good question. So, for example, one of the groups that's listed is the Islamic State West African Province, which is a group that's, so Boko Haram, which is the group that's been around since the mid-2000s, late 2000s, killed hundreds of thousands of people over the years in Nigeria, caused tens of millions of dollars in damage to the local economy. Islamic State West African Province, or ISWAP for short, is, is kind of vying for influence within Boko Haram. Why in heaven's name would Canada list them? What is the potential link to Canada between Canadians, Canadian entities, and Boko Haram. I, I mean, in my time at CSIS, I can I can tell you categorically, to the best of my memory, and I'm getting a little older now, I don't recall a single occasion in which we had any files linked to Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. There's also a legitimate question that needs to be answered, and I haven't seen it yet, is that is the Proud Boys truly a terrorist group? Or are they a hate group? 
or are they a far right group? And I think we're throwing out definitions very loosely these days. And you raise January the 6th. We still can't agree on what January the 6th was. Was it an act of domestic terrorism? Was it an insurrection? Was it an attempted coup? Was it, as I've said, a frat party gone wrong when people thought, oh, let's just make a presence on the Capitol. Oh, my God, we're, we're now in the front door. Now what do we do? Oh, we'll take selfies in the speaker's chair. I think it was all the above simultaneously. And w- what worries me about the Proud Boy listing, I'm not a fan of the Proud Boys. I, I don't have any time for them. Yeah. But A, are they a terrorist group? Uh, do they warrant being listed? And more importantly, because you list them, the implication is that the, the bodies that investigate this stuff, i.e. CSIS and the RCMP, are going to have to devote resources to it. And where are those resources going to come from? I just got off the phone with an RCMP calling, and I asked him point blank, you know, in this time of COVID, where the Trudeau government is over a trillion dollars in debt, how much more money and the resources has the RCMP got in the past year? How about none? So where are the resources going to come to look at the Proud Boys? Mm-hmm. Well, you got to take them from somewhere else. Yeah. And that's the old adage of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So I'm not saying the Proud Boys are a nice group of men. I, I don't think they are. They don't represent what I think it means to be Canadian. But you telling me it's a coincidence that we listed the Proud Boys two weeks or three weeks after the attack in Washington? The government says, oh, no, this has been in the works for a while. <laughs> you don't think it's a coincidence they are listed two weeks after the attack on the Capitol, after Jagmeet Singh called for it? Yeah. After Parliament, which, by the way, in the best of my knowledge, Parliament has never voted to list a terrorist group, ever. Not even Al-Qaeda after 9-11. Why the Proud Boys were the only one? Why wasn't Parliament debating ISWAP? Mm-hmm. Why wasn't Parliament debating, there's another group in Pakistan that was listed, I forget what the name of it, Hizbul Mujahideen or something. Why wasn't the Parliament debating Ottomwaffen? Why were they debating the Proud Boys? Because of the perceived role in January the 6th. So again, going back to your early question, there's a lot of politics to this kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. As you mentioned, the, the government would have to come up with resources to address these groups now that they're on the list. What does listing these groups allow authorities to do that they can't do if they're not on the list? I was informed by a, an old friend of mine from CSIS. So I came out quite strongly initially saying the listing was a waste of time. And then he kind of set the record straight. There actually is a purpose from the listing. And part of it is that if you're investigating someone and you can demonstrate to the satisfaction of a court, for example, that, you know, Phil Gursky is a member of the Proud Boys and the Proud Boys is a listed entity that facilitates certain tools you're going to get. A court would be much more amenable to, let's say, getting a warrant mm-hmm. to intercept my communications. Right. So you, you can apply to a court to get a warrant under CSIS legislation. There's a, there's a whole process that goes on. It's called Section 21 warrants under, under the CSIS Act. Not surprisingly, warrants aren't handed out like candy, and nor should they be. It's, it is intrusion on, on our privacy rights as Canadians. So if CSIS or the RCMP want to get a 21 warrant or a part six warrant, as they call it, the RCMP, you have to make a pretty convincing case that the government needs to know something that should be private. You can use the list to say, well, we're pretty sure that Phil is a member of the Proud Boys and you've listed the Proud Boys. So the court might say, yeah, well, we'll grant you the powers to do this kind of thing. The other thing, of course, that I think listings facilitates is uh, possible charges for terrorist financing. So if you can prove that Phil Gursky is a member of the Proud Boys and Phil Gursky is dumb enough to write a check to the Proud Boys and it's listed, then you could technically charge him with financing terrorism in Canada. But there's another issue, which I hope we get into. What does it mean to be a member? And how do you prove that? I think that's a much bigger issue. Now that you've raised that, like how does a government entity decide who is and who isn't a member of a terror group? Because you know, I'm sure in some cases there may be organizations with lists 
if Dave Breckenridge's name shows up in the phone book of someone who's part of this group, does that mean I'm a member? How does the government determine that? What a great question you're asking, Dave, to which I have no answer. And I mean, in some cases, people are really stupid. So if you remember the guy that uh, hit the police officer outside Commonwealth Stadium a couple of years ago? Yeah. He wasn't charged with terrorism, best of my knowledge. He was charged with uh, attempted murder. And then he went on Jasper Ave and hit a few more pedestrians. Correct. The guy had an ISIS flag on the dashboard of his rented truck. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've got an ISIS flag on the dashboard of your rented truck, either you're the biggest moron on the planet or you see yourself as a member of ISIS. And that could have been used in a court case to say, well, why else would you have an ISIS flag on your dash? Why didn't you have a Canadian flag? Why didn't you have a gay rights flag? Why didn't you have a whatever flag? You had an ISIS flag. That should indicate something. I'm being slightly facetious here, but this is a really important question. Yes, groups like Islamic State, when they ran the caliphate in Iraq, did keep very scrupulous records of who was who in the zoo. And allied forces who took back some of the towns and cities that that Islamic State controlled are using those lists to find people. Mm -hmm. And maybe email lists as well. But again... Just because you're on an email list, does that mean you're part of the Proud Boys? Maybe you're a source in hiding. Maybe you're a journalist like Dave Breckenridge who wants to find out more about them. If I were a defense lawyer and my client said I'm being brought up on charges of being a member of Proud Boys, I would go to town on the government. You have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that my client is a member of Proud Boys. How are you going to do that? Does he have a membership card? Uh, does he have a tattoo in a secret part of his body that shows he's a member of the Proud Boys? Yeah. These are really good questions, and I don't think there are any answers to them. So going back to what I used to work on when I worked at CSIS, I worked on Islamist extremism. The Toronto 18 called themselves Al-Qaeda in Canada. These guys couldn't spell Al-Qaeda, and they couldn't find it on a map. Yeah. Why they call themselves Al-Qaeda in Canada? To scare the bejesus out of people, right? Mm-hmm. So would you call them Al-Qaeda? No, because A, that's giving them far too much credit. I'm not dismissing how serious the plot is. This was actually a very serious plot, and hundreds if not thousands would have been killed had it been successful. Yeah. But these guys were not Al-Qaeda in Canada. These guys were homegrown, domestic Islamist extremists who drunk the, the, the jihadi Kool-Aid and decided to blow up parts of downtown Toronto. But they were not Al-Qaeda. They had no sanction from Al-Qaeda. Even Islamic State will claim people that it has no knowledge of. A lot of these attacks in Western Europe, ISIS says that, that was our boy in France, that was our boy in Geneva. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. These are people that are, in, what they call them inspired or fellow travelers, whatever you want to, they're not members of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. They're just people that basically sing from the same song sheet. I mean, that's where the question of membership gets murky, right? Because a larger organized group can claim anybody after an attack, presumably when they themselves have been killed in an attack, in a suicide attack, they can claim that person as as one of us. But also on the flip side, if a group feels the heat of the government and can say like, you know, we're going to dismantle the right-wing hate group in Quebec, and then they reform next week as the right-wing hate group in New Brunswick... And they're a new group that might have to get a new listing and start the whole process all over again, right? You're absolutely right. And this is exactly what happened in the United Kingdom, Dave, with a group called Al-Mujahirun, who were a real pain in the ass for the Brits in the 90s and 2000s. Members of, or graduates, whatever you want to call it, of Al-Mujahirun did carry out acts of terrorism around the world. So they listened to Al-Mujahirun, and Al-Mujahirun said, fine, we're going to change our name, which is exactly what they did. And all of a sudden, that it's a different name. It's not on the list. Mm-hmm. So the sanctions don't apply to it because it's a different organization. It's, kind of, it's almost like registering a corporation, right? If you change the corporation's name, then it makes it harder to follow the corporation. It's as simple as that. And that's what terrorist groups do all the time. Look at Islamic State. What is the official name of Islamic State? Is it Islamic State? Islamic State in Iraq and Syria? Islamic State in Iraq and Shams? Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant? Mm-hmm. Is it the Arabic Daesh of Daulat Islamiyah for Iraq or Shams? Are it Daulat Islamiyah for Iraq or Syria? 
there's as many names as there are people sometimes. If we see listings as the end all and be all, smart terrorists are going to catch on pretty quick. And they'll say, fine, we'll just change two vowels in our name or put another adjective in, or as you said, go from group A in Quebec to group B in New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. And then you guys can't touch us. And I don't know if the government has some kind of flexibility. My reading of the legislations, it doesn't have that. I could be wrong. I'm not a lawyer, not a legal specialist, but I think listings is it is useful in some cases, but A, it draws attention to groups, which is both good and bad. Uh, it makes Canadians aware of them, which is good. But it also tells the groups that they're on the radar, which is bad. If you're following a group, you'd rather they don't know on the radar. Mm-hmm. So you can't insert human sources and all that kind of stuff. And in all honesty, I mean, it accords the Proud Boys far too much importance. Yeah, These guys are not the A team. And I'm, I'm really getting a little bit nervous about all these articles I'm reading by so-called experts saying that the far right, people like the Proud Boy, pose as great as, if not greater risk than Islamic State when it comes to terrorism. And I'm saying, could you please point to the numbers here? Because I'm not seeing the numbers. In watching coverage of the Proud Boys outside of what happened in Washington, I've seen things like where they go fight with members or so-called members of Antifa at protests in various American cities, or they were the counter-protesters trying to stir up controversy around the removal of a statue in Halifax, right? Yeah. You hear about other groups in Canada that are engaging in military-style training and stockpiling weapons, and you think, well, who is the bigger threat? Is it the people with the military-style weapons and running military-style training, or is it the people at the protests who are starting fights? What is the level of threat with some of these groups on the far right, like Adam Waffen and the base and and the Proud Boys, and how should law enforcement deal with them? Okay, it's a great question, and I'm not going to give you a very good answer because (laughs) for two reasons. For two reasons. One is I didn't work the far right when I was at CSIS. Fair enough. And secondly, my knowledge of operational priorities uh, dates from 2013. Mm -hmm. So I I don't have any eyes or ears on what the priorities are now. I do know anecdotally that more resources have been allotted to looking at the far right. Full disclosure, when I left CSIS in 2013, there was no significant far right investigation to the best of my knowledge for the simple reason that we were, were going flat out on jihadi investigations. And for good reason, think what happened in 2014 and the attack on Parliament Hill. The attack two days earlier in Montreal, in which two members of the Canadian forces were killed in those two attacks. Mm-hmm. So from a counterterrorism perspective, we had our hands full with Islamist extremists, not to mention the 200 Canadians that thought that joining ISIS was a good idea. Yeah. Right. And the Canadians that, that you know, think of uh, Wasim Chowdhury in Bangladesh, who killed 20 people at a cafe on, on July 1st, 2016. Think of the, the two guys from my hometown, London, Ontario, went to an, a base in Algeria in, in January 2013, killed 40 people. So we were all hands on deck for Islamist extremist threats for justifiable reason back in the mid-2000s. I'm guessing that, you know, resources have been reallocated. But again, I don't want to repeat my arguments. Resources have to come from somewhere. And I'm not sure where they took them from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you raise a really good point. How do you prioritize the panoply, if I can use that term, of far-right groups in Canada? The Proud Boys do strike me as more of a pain in the backside than anything else. I haven't seen any acts of violence, January 6th notwithstanding, in our country, a tribute to the Proud Boys. What do you do about soldiers of Odin? They strike me as more just Marvel movie wannabes that didn't get picked for Thor or something. I don't know. <laughs> what do you do with the three percenters? Yeah. Which is probably about the level of their IQ at the same time, right? What do you do with La Meute in Quebec? It seems like whenever La Meute gathers for a demonstration in Quebec, you have more counter-protesters than you have La Meute protesters. Another thing, Dave, um, where's freedom of speech in all this? If I'm going to protest the removal of a statue in Halifax, for whatever reason, do I not have a charter right to express my views that that statue shouldn't be removed? Mm -hmm. Unless I'm doing so violently, which is against the law. 
again, I'm not trying to dismiss that there are some worrisome aspects to these groups. We did see a far-right attack in January of 2017 in a mosque in Quebec City. Although, to set the record straight, Alexandre Bissonnette was not charged with terrorism. Mm-hmm. He was charged with first-degree murder and attempted murder in that case. Uh, don't get me started on the incels. That's a red herring that, that people have jumped on, which is completely irrelevant to our conversation, although I've been crucified for not supporting them as terrorists. But no, I, I think these are all really, really good questions. And I don't know how you, as an organization, be it CSIS or the RCMP or, or even local law enforcement, the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, has an anti-terrorism section. I used to work there in 2015 when I left CSIS. Do they have resources on the far right? I, I already have no idea. And to what extent? Because when you move resources from A to B and something blows up on A, and it blows up in part because you didn't have enough resources looking at it, Canadians don't care that you had to move resources. They just care that you weren't there when you should have been. Yeah. I'm not saying this in a complaining kind of way. It's just the reality is you're only as good as your last failure. Mm-hmm. No one cares how many cells you break up. Nobody cares how many attacks you you prevent. They just care the ones you miss. And you look at Michael Zahapibo in October of 2014, the fact that he was able to get within meters of the prime minister, who I believe was meeting in a meeting, had a caucus meeting in, in center block before he, that guy was gunned down. You can imagine the conversation the prime minister had with his RCMP officials after that one. Mm-hmm. How did the guy get within three meters of the prime minister? Yeah. Where were you guys? Why wasn't he on your radar? Why weren't you investigating him? Why didn't you have a human source? Why didn't you have warrants? Why didn't, you know what I mean? The questions go on and on and on and on. And that's my fear is that if we do a 180 and start saying, well, the far right is all we're worried about these days, we may be caught with our pants down at some point. Yeah. It's a fascinating discussion and definitely one that Canadians have their eye on a little more these days. Phil, thanks for your time. Anytime, Dave. Always, always a pleasure to chat. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Phil Gursky. His new book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present, is out now. More from him at BorealisThreatAndRisk.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.